This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Well, hey, folks, today is a uh, first on Existential. I actually have two guests. Two guests are better than one. And they're good friends of mine, Ali Henney and Alicia Crosby. And both of them are um, some of the smartest people that I know. Both have advanced degrees and all kind of stuff <laughs> that I think maybe they can tell you about. Um, but there's been a lot of, like, conversation um, about... Black Lives Matter, about the movement, about Marxism, about faith, about religion, about the LBGTQ plus community. And I just wanted to have a conversation with people um, who are intelligent enough to have a nuanced conversation about these things. And both, and here I'll tell you this, both of them, when I asked them to come on the podcast, um, told me that they didn't, that they weren't like, that well-versed or knowledgeable about it. And what's, what's crazy to me about, about that is that from what the conversations I've already had with them, they know more than 90 to 99% of the people out there that are lamenting <laughs> Marxism's proximity to the Black Lives Matter movement. So Ali and Alicia, thanks for coming on. Why don't you both just, I don't know, I don't, know how, I don't even know how to do this because I've never done it before. Why don't you all just say hello and a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, I'll go first. Um, I'm Allie Henney, and I recently received my Master of Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary uh, with an emphasis in race, cultural identity, and reconciliation. Um, Before that, I was a youth pastor in different churches, kind of different denominations and whatnot. Um, I hope to, after receiving my Master of Divinity and after church and stuff, like, starts again because I I live in Chicago and so churches aren't open right now. Um, But I hope to continue on in the ministry, hopefully be a pastor um, at this point, I, I have not started the process, but I'm looking at ordination in the Episcopal Church, and oh, so wow. maybe maybe one day I will be an Episcopal priest. We'll see what happens there. So that's kind of my thing. And I'm also a writer and blogger, social media person. Um, I'm trying to think. I guess public theologian is what some people go. have podcaster. called me. Podcaster. Yeah, I'm just I'm just a person <laughs> out here doing stuff. And, and by yeah. and by the way, if Allie sounds familiar, y'all, she was on the podcast before, so she's she's and second time guest on Existential. Allie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And Alicia, my dog, what's good? So I am Alicia to folks like Corey and Allie because they are my friends, but professionally I go by Alicia. Um, sometimes we got to put distinctions around like our, the, our naming. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so professionally I go by Alicia T. Crosby. I too am a person, um, but that personhood extends into my being um, the co-host of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. I am a blogger, speaker, consultant minister i wear a lot of hats Mm -hmm. um but um the thing that like kind of i guess those hats hang on is the fact that i'm someone really interested in looking at 
systemic and interpersonal and institutional harm and how it affects folks. Um, and so that kind of unites like all of those things, um, including the fact that like I'm now back at school. Um, I have a well, I have a master's in social justice from Loyola, Chicago, which I moved from last year. Love me some Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm now in North Carolina at Duke getting a master's in theological study um, where the my thesis is going to be related to religious um, and spiritual violence and trauma. Um, the contours of that, like, will take shape over the course of the next year. But um, I'm just really excited to be here in conversation with my friends this Morning, afternoon, afternoon. Yeah, it just depends on what time zone. We're all in three different time zones right now. And we, we all got these Chicago roots too, right? I mean, I, I was born in Chicago. Do y'all have an appreciation for Chicago hot dogs before we get into the into the stuff that is not nearly as important as Chicago hot dogs? Do y'all have like an appreciation for them? Because I love them. I think they're Absolutely amazing. not. Absolutely not. I am from New York. I don't understand why all that stuff goes on the hot dog. Like, why are we throwing in kitchen sinks and baths on the bun? Like, it makes no sense to me. Hot dogs need ketchup, maybe barbecue sauce for being fancy. But like, you got pickles and salt, and like, I don't, I don't understand it. It's amazing. I don't think that I have ever had a Chicago hot dog. I have had a hot dog in Chicago, but I moved here during the pandemic. So that's so, so first of all, I need to say that like, I, like I just got here. Um, I had a hot dog in millennium park like last summer and it was good, but I don't think it was a Chicago hot dog. It probably wasn't. And consider yourself blessed because it's too much going on now. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's something that I haven't that I haven't um, gotten to experience yet. So yeah. Well, when yeah. you do, it's change your life. Until yeah, don't, listen, don't listen. Do to yourself. Leave, yeah. Do yourself better. Get you an Italian beef. <laughs> like that'll get you good. Whatever. <laughs> so okay, so y'all people have. To shift to, I'm, I'm gonna make an abrupt turn from that because I just can't, I can't even abide anymore that blas- blasphemous talk. But like, people have been really irking me. Like, it, it's really disturbed me, right? And Alicia, you like, you recognize that when we first got on before we recorded. This whole Marxism BLM thing is disturbing to me. And it's disturbing to me because, as I said, the average person who is lamenting it. Does probably couldn't pick Marx out of a lineup. They haven't read his work. They don't even they don't know what Marx they could they don't know the difference between Marxism and a hole in the wall. They just know that they've been told it's bad. So you guys have done some reading on it, and with your you know sort of advanced understanding of philosophies and theologies and whatnot. Like, how would you, what are y'all's thoughts on, as faith-based leaders, uh, on uh, people using Marxism, abortion, um, the support of the LBGTQ plus community to discredit the Black Lives Matter movement? So I will speak kind of on the Marxism aspect of it, and I'll and I'll let Alicia speak about the um, LGBTQ aspect of it, and then I guess we can meet somewhere um, in the middle. Otherwise, but the Marxism thing I think is really is really interesting. Um, I was actually on Facebook the other day, and a Facebook friend of mine um, who is fairly conservative, who's fairly just kind of I don't know right wing, kind of just whatever 
whatever. Um, he had posted something about how how communism, and so within communism, of course, that, that it's Marxism. Effectively, it's another it's another um, way of discussing of discussing communism. Um, he was like, you know, it's it's the most murderous ideology that there is that you know there's there's a hundred million people that that were killed by by uh lenin and stalin and and marxism like people in china have been killed blah 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 and so like you know i don't make it a habit really of going into folks comment sections and being like you're garbage like i just <laughs> because i mean that's like, like like because honestly like I don't, I, I have a lot of patience. I have been told that I have like the patience of Job. I don't believe that. <laughs> um, but like, there's just, but just lately, like, I don't have tolerance for people's crap. And so I'm just sitting here like, you know, homie sitting here calling Marxism murderous. And I'm like, okay, but in the name of democracy, how many millions, untold, right. untold millions of African people right. Their, their bones are at the bottom of the sea mm. because of slavery coming to America, the, the democratic, the seat of democracy. Like, mm. what, like okay, what, what the hell? There's like, <laughs> um, you know, millions of Native Americans, indigenous people. Now, some of their deaths and stuff occurred before America became the democracy that it is, but their lives did not become better after mm -hmm. the democracy mm -hmm. was was created. How many of of hundreds of thousands of people are dead because of wars that we have fought in the name of democracy? But we're going to call communism. We're going to say like like the issue isn't somebody's political ideology. The issue is that people act like trash. Like, let's not even talk about the the religious ideology and the crusades and all this other type of stuff that people are getting into. So, is, so I say all of that to talk about like so 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 Marxism and kind of why it's become the boogeyman. And and to me, I see an extension. It's an extension of um, some of the Red Scare tactics that people used during the 1950s. And so there's this communism was like this boogeyman. It was a threat to democracy because we, we had fought wars. We had fought World War One. We had fought World War Two, And we had fought even at that point, like even the Korean War that, that went on uh, for a short amount of time. Well, Americans, like, like for several generations for, I mean, you're talking like, like two generations, maybe even three that are kind of encompassed in this time in our nation's history that have had major wars and they've seen America during wartime. And there's just all this, there, there's all this like nostalgia, just all this stuff that is built up around this. But I really believe that, that the McCarthyism, that the, that the Red Scare, all that type of stuff, that was a reaction to communism in the in the fifties and even um, into the into the sixties and it still exists today. But but like that that height of that was the result of Americans not knowing what to do with themselves after war. After but like the like like whenever people talk about making America great again, they're talking about that time. They're talking about. World War II, like that's like people talk about, you know, the greatest generation and how they and how they served in, in World War II. And there's kind of like this idolization of that. Some of the institutions, some of the things that we have that we know as America now, um, 
it came about during that time. And so I think that this I, that this reaction to Marxism, that this reaction essentially to change to, to things, to, to people who are saying, hey, America isn't that great. There's things that need to be changed. But I think that it's all tied into this misguided notion that America has, that people have bought into of what America is. And so if there's anything that even seems to pose a little bit of a threat, it has very little to do with the actual ideology. It has more to do with the fact that it seen as other or it's seen as mm. foreign it wasn't if black or black people if white american people had come up with marxism or socialism or whatever mm. people would be like all about it but because it was people that were you know it was it was marx he was he was german it's people people who weren't from who, who weren't from here that were that came up with something and it was and it was and and the values are a referendum on a lot of things that are quote-unquote american about that became quote-unquote quote american values um they people are afraid of it and so now with black taking that to black lives matter you have black people that are calling for something that's different and so this is a way of othering they did the same thing to martin to martin luther king um who whose uh whose ideologies in some ways lean toward a a form of socialism it's just another way of othering people who don't think like white cisgender straight american men like mm-hmm. like flat, let's wave the flag let's worship white mm-hmm. american jesus and it's just it's a, it's a cluster y'all yeah i mean it sounds like what you're saying is that anything that critiques america's deeply held beliefs about their superiority is problematic it doesn't matter if it's marxism or what it is, it's, there's always going to be something that is used, I love how you put it, to other anyone who it has an honest, good faith critique of the American way. And that's, that's what we're facing when you see people talking about Marxism and any other boogeyman that there is. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a part of it. But like the thing that's um, sort of a hidden or undercurrent for me in this conversation is actually economics Mm. and resource um, distribution. And I think that that's part of the threat that people aren't acknowledging, but is definitely present there. I mean, even in us mentioning MLK, right? Like MLK was out there for years, right? Like he was there and people considered him a threat, but he was a threat that needed to be eliminated when he started speaking about like economic reordering when he started calling for economic justice that's the point in which they're like all right this man gotta go and that's when he was assassinated um i think that we can't talk about like you know people's discomfort with marxism without speaking about the fact that this isn't just a political system this is an economic system as well and you know and talking about you know, Marxism as it relates to, you know, Black Lives Matter, when we're speaking about things like reparations and, you know, there's a lot of critique in this moment around billionaires and how they've amassed their wealth. Mm -hmm. Like that's the actual threat because like we're challenging who has the ability to sit and sit in seats of power unchallenged and uncontested. And that's really where the threat lies because people want to be able to consolidate their power. They want to be able to stay in control. They want to, you know, have means of yes production in terms of like material and and you know tangible forms of wealth but also like social you know 
And I think that that'll lead us into talking about like why people challenge the support of LGBTQ persons within BLM and even abortion. Like these are conversations, you know, that folks who are more conservative in their background started having, I believe in, I'm going to say the late seventies, early eighties, right? Like attacking these things, period, like in social discourse, like happened. It was, it was a, 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 a it was a conscious effort. There was a group of cisgender heterosexual white men who were also Protestant Christians who sat in a room and decided that in order to maintain political power, that they were going to specifically use abortion and LGBTQ equity as their sort of targets. Wow. And there's like books written on this, articles, like there's a, a trackable history here. Um you know, people like, I think like Frank Schaefer, um, not to be confused with his son, Frank Schaefer, who's like decidedly more liberal, but like Frank Schaefer and Jerry Falwell and and others, they sat in a room and decided that these were going to be the things that they use in order to um, gain and maintain social control. Wow. Um, and we're just seeing that manifest in movement now. I mean, at that point, like, you know, if we're talking the 80s, we're talking about, like, tail end of the Cold War. So, like, attacks on Marxism, like, really, I mean, it was a thing, wasn't a thing. I mean, it was in that, like, people were still having, like, conversations about Russians and media um, and making them that sort of boogeyman. But, like, it wasn't advantageous as faith leaders to go that route specifically. Um, but these two things in um, particular were foci. And I think that the thing that matters is that all of these things have to do with people's agency, right? Mm -hmm. When you're talking about, you know, socioeconomic movements, when you're talking about, you know, people's rights to do what they want to do for the sake of their own health and in their bodies, when you're talking about people loving who they love and like living into the fullness of their identity as sexual and gender minorities, we're speaking about people living and exercising agency and telling other people that they don't have the rights to control them. Mm. That's really what this is. It's about power. That's why, like, if we have any conversations about really anything and we don't, like, take into consideration how power functions, how power is grown and held and restricted, those conversations are incomplete. And I think all three of these things, Marxism, abortion, um, and um, LGBTQ equity, um, they're all about power and people's ability, honestly, to have power over themselves themselves and shape their own reality and there are people who don't like that and so they are now using that to um to do something like discredit you know the movement for black lives because ultimately that's also about our power and our exercise and i don't know our power to live and to breathe and to be and there are people who are just like in their feels about it because they don't like that dude and so in so one of the other things that came up that people were using to discredit it was this idea um, that, and I'm going to read the statement from the Black Lives Matter uh, movement website, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. So like people were really taking that to mean that the Black Lives Matter movement was about disrupting the nuclear, like, almost making it sound like there was that the nuclear family, whatever that even means, has no validity and should not be a thing, and no one can choose that. But at least, at least what you're saying is, well, at least what I'm hearing you say is, 
that this is about people's agency and their freedom and their ability to choose for themselves. Yeah. And I mean, and specific to like that statement, like think about, I think about how, um, how radical and beautiful that is, because that's a statement that reminds people that we belong to one another. And they didn't mm-hmm. say that they were dismantling, like, right. you right. know, the news. They said they were disrupting, because guess what? There are more family structures than, you know, mom, dad, 2.5 kids, and the white picket fence, and, like, right. little Sparky. Like, <laughs> there, there are more family dynamics than that. There are intergenerational families. There are mixed families. There are families of choice. And and when something like, you know, Black Lives Matter says that they're out there to disrupt this, like, notion of family, they're looking at, like, you know, indigenous family structures of varying sorts and queer family structures and just, you know, mm. I mean, it's beautiful because, like, they're saying that your family matters, like, how y'all come together and share and love one another matters. Mm. Um and that's worth centering, but that does feel like an attack to people who have, you know, the quote-unquote traditional family and, like, want to uphold quote-unquote traditional family values, which they, like, oddly, like, describe a lot of the times as biblical family structure, which, as people who actually know the Bible, we know that's not true. <laughs> like, <laughs> biblical examples of families are honestly... To some extent, because there was, like, a lot of, like, shenanigans, including, like, you know, rape and kidnapping and trafficking and whatever that formed, quote-unquote, families in the scriptures. But, you know, those sense, the sense of family that we see within the scriptures is really expansive. And honestly, I think that if we're talking about biblical view of family, BLM probably has it better um, articulated than a lot of folks who were challenging them in this moment. Wow. That's well, there's a lot of, I think, vested interest that a lot of these folks have in um, in the quote-unquote traditional family, in the quote-unquote traditional family structure. Um, there's kind of an entire um, machine that was created, a whole mechanism that was that was created to basically center that as the normative family mm. because it supported certain it's supported certain narratives um like so for instance that that nuclear family structure quote unquote was there for the subjugation of mm. women and mm. let me let me just back up and even say that mm. if whenever you look at history this idea of the 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 nuclear family this whole this whole thing that the whole prizing of that that was something that again you go back to that same era that I that I referenced earlier that idea was it's not that it didn't exist before then but this idea of the white picket fence that the 2.5 kids and a dog that started after World War II that started wow. after so after you know after families and stuff were were all you know torn apart or whatever because of this because of this war this whole narrative of the suburbs this narrative of of suburban health wealth and prosperity we can we can trace that to that time, and so th- these narratives were were used even um, to dis as justification for disrupting other people's families, and so you see of, of other family structures. So mm-hmm. even before that, there there were there were laws that were weaponized to uh, take 
indigenous children from their families and to traffic them because their family structures didn't look like that. It didn't look like the the white American, and I say white American because I think you know other ethnicities, other cultures had different ideas, had different European cultures and stuff had had some different concepts of family and how family structure and stuff works. But somehow, just in this, this is where this is where they got, and so it was used mm-hmm. to to steal children, to steal indigenous children from their families. This was also this this structure has also been used to steal black and to steal Latinx kids mm. from their families. This mm. this structure has been used to it's been used for to, to justify effectively to justify human trafficking um in in a, in a way. And so it's it so there's so there's that whole kind of layer that's that's there to that. But I think that this idea of it's attacking I, I think they at least put it very well that it's it's attack it's people feel like they're being attacked when because that's because that's what people who are in power do whenever they're like we talk about you know white fragility we talk about this other type of stuff people who are in power for whatever i i've i've yet to fully unpack and uncover like what why people do this but i've noticed that a lot of white power structures they 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 thrive on this sense of that they have to there's like a protectionism that happens and so there's this kind of almost zero sum thinking that they engage mm-hmm. in so if if i if, if i don't get to do this or, or if you don't do this then i don't get to do it either or if or if you say that I shouldn't have this and nobody gets to have this, mm-hmm. or like um, they they kind of think that if that that the way that they've treated others, I think that that they, they don't say this, but the but the way that they behave is like, oh, so if we if we treat others this way, then that's the way that we're also going to be treated. So yeah. so dismantling the nuclear family in their minds because because they have participated and and as a culture have been complicit in the human trafficking the different things that have that have happened to other people they think for whatever reason that we're that people like we're going to show up at their house take their children from them (laughs) they like like, but that that we're going to that we're going to force them to into relationships that they don't want to have that we're going to bring people into their houses that we like and that's like that's literally not it it's saying you can you can choose your family structure and that i mean the the the, there's a myth that the that the nuclear family has always been the standard has always been how people have operated i mean it's it's something that supports white middle class and upper class culture that's it Poor yeah. black people, yeah. poor white, poor white people didn't. They, they they were divorced. They had children out at quote unquote mm-hmm. out of quote unquote wedlock. Mm. It's it's just there's so much, and, and I, I just can't even I, I can't even with it honestly because it's it's just there's mm-hmm. so there's there's layers upon layers of just nonsense and mythology to wow. it. Wow, I love you that. You named it. You named it. It's the mythologies. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and these stories that people have constructed because right, myths are constructed. Um, and then they're dispersed, like they're given to the people. And, you know, those mythologies need to uphold, you know, things like, I don't know, like they uphold things like supremacy, supremacy and hegemony and, you know, imperial power, all these things rely on absolutes. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, when those myths start falling apart, people fall apart because they're so heavily vested and deeply vested in them that like they don't, they can't imagine their lives 
outside of these things. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, you know, in part, like when we're talking about all of this, we're dealing with like a lack of imagination. Like Mm -hmm. the imagination is so like tethered to the myth and like it is only allowed to operate within like this myth making that, you know, people literally cannot conceive of a reality that doesn't function in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I want to talk about the theological implications of of what you said for a minute. I was just about to move into that. Is that the the, the myth of the nuclear family, the myth of of one one man, one woman, Mm -hmm. and how many ever children, you know, a quiver full of children or whatever. There's <laughs> the there's there there is a and there is a myth behind that, but what but you talk about it affecting people's sense of self and their mm-hmm. their self worth their self being. I would even extend that to the worth of other people, mm-hmm. and so the theological implications of that is if you don't fit this myth this Mm -hmm. mold that we have pulled out of thin air, essentially, if you don't fit that, Mm -hmm. then you don't have value to us. And ultimately you don't have value to God. And so this is why I think you see a lot of these evangelical families completely implode Mm -hmm. whenever there's any type of challenge, whenever, whenever somebody has an affair and somebody, Mm -hmm. people who, who, who have committed to a, to monogamy, somebody decides to to go outside of that of that monogamous agreement, and it blows everything up. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it the family the family implodes. Mm-hmm. Whenever the the head of the of that family maybe comes out as 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 gay or as queer or mm-hmm. recognizes that that their gender isn't what they were assigned mm-hmm. at birth, mm-hmm. the, the structure implodes. Yeah. Or if mm-hmm. a child decides not that 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 their that their gender that their that their mm-hmm. that their sexual orientation whatever, it it implodes. Mm-hmm. It, it implodes whenever a person isn't able to conceive a child. Yes. Mm-hmm. It yes. implodes. Yes. So it y'all implodes. y'all have y'all have these advanced degrees in biblical thought and biblical ideology. So so as you're talking, I have. This question that I didn't even ask, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this because this conversation has gone places that I'm so energized by that I just got to, I got to ask about this now, right? Because when, when you talk about absolutes and you talk about binaries and you talk about it has to be this or, or this, a lot of that comes from the evangelical understanding of the Bible, that people view the Bible in such a way that like, you hear people say things like the Bible is clear about this and the Bible is clear about this other thing. When, as you have studied it, as all of us who've done deep, deep dives in the Bible know that the Bible is anything but clear. It's all over the place about all of these things. But what is it? Could you guys identify something that, or an approach that evangelicals have to the Bible that leads to, to so much of this problematic thinking in regards to Black Lives Matter, the LBGTQ+, abortion issues, nuclear family, all of these things are woven and wrapped up in a misunderstanding of the Bible. And could you guys maybe get to, maybe not the center of it, because there's probably a lot of them, but maybe a couple of these things, that ways that evangelicals have traditionally viewed the Bible that are not in line with what the Bible actually is. So one thing I want to do is like, um, 
sort of displace um, or maybe re... I don't know what the, the word I'm trying to go for. Evangelicals are not the only problem. Like, let's just be clear here. For sure. And the sure. issue didn't start with evangelicalism. There have been factions, like, within Christianity from its inception, like, who argued for certain positions that did marginalize, like, the people around them. This is just the newest wave of it. Right. And it's also a relatively modern wave of it. And there, you know, have been, you know, as we know, like, entire, like, church councils <laughs> that have been convened and, you know, and denominational councils as we've gone on gone on over time to talk about like the ways in which we hold scripture and like and even like you know tradition outside of scripture in order to to determine what is the truth that will guide us um and i think that when we put a lot of stock in evangelical on evangelicals um we're talking I don't know. I feel like we're almost being reductive about like what's happening here. We're like, mm. we're overly simplifying things because the reality is that we can't just blame evangelicals for the ways in which Christianity in the U.S. I can't talk about other people's social context. I can mm. talk about mine, mm. but Christianity in the U.S. functions because there are problematic elements that are present within the Catholic Church. There are probably problematic elements that exist within mainline churches. Evangelicals are not the only ones responsible for the ways in which Christianity negatively bears down on people, whether they be LGBTQ folks, whether they be people who have had abortions or considering that as an option for the sake of their their health and wellness on levels. They are not the only people who are coming against, you know, Marxism. They are not the only people who are challenging the sanctity and the dignity of Black life in this moment. So... I just want to yeah. start this conversation by yeah, like yeah. letting folks know that it's not only evangelicals and not all evangelicals are on that. Right. There are mm-hmm. folks who are, I won't even say more progressive because I don't think this is a progressive versus conservative things exclusively. And I think that again, when we collapse the issue in on itself, we make it a little bit too simple and stories and people are complex. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think that in order to, to be effective storytellers, which all of us are, we have the ability and maybe even the responsibility to like help nuance things, mm. which is why I'm saying this. <laughs> um, that all being what it is, um, I'm gonna need you to like go back to your prompt, Corey, because I honestly <laughs> forgot it. <laughs> no, 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 all of that was all of that was really good because because it's a reminder that even within and I'll just I'll use progressive thought for the sense for the sake of naming it where people have some have some proximity to understanding what we're talking about. But there's a boogie there's boogeymen that we hold also. There's boogeymen that we like evangelical. What you just named for me is evangelical as a boogeyman for all of the opposition to Black Lives Matter, right? Like every we look at that and simplify it. Oh, you're an evangelical, so you must be yada yada yada. So that's that's an incredibly helpful clarification and and nuance to bring to this entire conversation that we're not just talking about the people who um, have been labeled as responsible for the current occupant occupant of the White House. Mm -hmm. But the question is, with the Bible being central for any person Mm -hmm. who has the Bible as their sort of central mode of of understanding sociology and everything else in, in, in American life, like, what is it that people who oppose the dignity and class and and brilliance and 
life of black people who use the Bible for that? What is it that they misunderstand about the way that the Bible is constructed? Oh, they misunderstand Jesus. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's simple to me. Because the imperative that dude gave us was to love. Mm-hmm. Like, when he speaks about, like, you know, the prophet and the, the prophets and the law, like, I mean, literally, my man said, love. Literally. Right? And, like, and then we have, you know, later in the text, you know, the ability to see what love looks like about its patience and kindness and being long suffering. And when we're looking at the fruit of the spirit, Mm. um, because like, for me, like that's, you know, kind of, that's really what my metric of love is. Like when I'm looking at love in its embodied form, I'm looking at the fruit of the spirit because the Mm. spirit to me is love. And like when we're told that the greatest of these things is love, that's the thing they're missing imperative to love. Mm. Like, I I don't know how everything else gets used, but like, that's, yeah, what it is for me. Mm. And to that point, I think that there's kind of this, this weird kind of continuum that is like a continuum, but it kind of loops back in on itself is that people miss like that simplistic, like that, that, that's the simplicity essentially of the gospel, the simplicity of the, the message of scripture, that, that thread that, that goes throughout scripture, whenever we're talking about that love, whenever we're talking about that love of God and neighbor. And so I think that, that there's, that there's that end of it. And I think that kind of on the more complex end of the spectrum is that People have gotten so into biblical interpretation and understanding the Bible and blah, 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 that they, that they miss the simplicity of it. But then there's also not, a, there's not a good hermeneutic. And hermeneutic is just another word for interpretation that a lot of church circles, and with this, I, I, I say this with a disclaimer, that we are reading an ancient, a set of ancient texts that yes. were written in a time, in a yes. context, and in a culture that we simply do not understand. Yeah, we, we like our thousands of over, over a book that was written over books, multiple because the Bible yeah. is not just one book; it's yes. multiple books it's that letters. were that were mm-hmm. that were written over over millennia, and so <laughs> we definitely have things that tools and stuff that aid us in being able to give our best guess as to what the text means. And so mm-hmm. there, there's something, there's a, there is a term that I learned in seminary called multivalence. Um, we also talked about like the three worlds of, of the text. Now don't ask me to, to like <laughs> unpack all of that. Um, <laughs> but, but just, but, but anyway, um, so there's, so, so multivalence, there's this, there's this, idea that we can we can read the scripture in different ways and mm-hmm. so you can read it in its historical context you can read it in its, in its historical understanding to the best of our knowledge and ability to understand the language mm-hmm. and the culture etc cetera, etc cetera. So, so there's that aspect of it mm-hmm. and then there's also the aspect of what it might mean to the to the interpretive community so the okay. people who are reading the scripture and who are interpreting the scripture and then the, the then another layer of that multivalence is what it means to me personally mm-hmm. and so we talk about when we talk about the three worlds of the text we 
talk about, like I said, you know, the, the context in which it was written, the people to, to which it was written. We, we talk about what the scripture has also meant throughout the history of the Christian church or even to the people whenever you start talking about, about Judaism and some mm-hmm. of the, and some of the people within, within those related traditions, what the text meant to them. And then also, mm-hmm. okay, now what does the text mean to us, either our interpretive community or me as an individual? And so there's, mm-hmm. a, so I say all of that, mm-hmm. I put all that out there because I think that what people often confuse and conflate in a lot of circles is our readings of the scripture that 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 maybe fit within our personal interpretation or within our ter- interpretive communities mm-hmm. and even sometimes to an extent the things the the, the aspects of tradition um mm-hmm. so like you like like because uh, i i come from a pentecostal background so i'll use pentecostal tradition um mm-hmm. there are things that certain scriptures have meant within the history of that tradition mm-hmm. those often get confused and conflated for this is what god meant whenever god mm-hmm. when it, when this is this is this is what this is what the the original meaning of the text is this is mm-hmm. what, what so so there's so there so there is so so there's the com- the complexity of faulty hermeneutics of faulty ways mm-hmm. for looking at the bible and so this so this mindset mm-hmm. that that this is what the bible means and there's some there are some groups that are um more that 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 do this and emphasize kind of that aspect of it a little bit more than others but kind of underlying a lot of american tra- mm-hmm. christian traditions is this idea of we can figure the the bible out mm-hmm. um but then there's also there's also a a mythologizing of the bible to the sense of like oh there's like we can't figure it out we don't we don't know anything so so there's kind of so there's kind of those two extremes working mm-hmm. working in on each other but then where i say that that it that it folds back on itself is so there's all of this complexity that i just said but people then reduce that complexity to okay well this is what the bible means or this is they they reduce it to they they reduce all of this all this rich complexity of understanding and interpreting Mm -hmm. the scripture to this is what my favorite theologian says that Mm -hmm. it means so this is so this is so this is what it so this is what it means and Mm -hmm. so a lot so i think that a lot of these issues like going back to the going back to the marxism going back to to abortion and and lgbtq plus persons what's what's happened is that everybody has sort of gathered around their favorite interpretations and understanding of what the scripture says Mm -hmm. and they're and there, there are. How, how do I say this? I want to say this very carefully. Oh, there are, there are good readings of the scripture, and there are bad readings of the scripture. Mm-hmm. So, like, so, like, it, it, you can't just interpret the Bible any way that you want to. I mean, like, you can do that. Like, you can, mm-hmm. you can literally do that. You can mm-hmm. literally just say, you know, yeah, the Bible justifies this and this and this and this, and you can build it, the, the argument upon itself. Mm-hmm. But there are good interpretations of scripture and mm-hmm. there are bad interpretations of scripture mm-hmm. and good interpretations of scripture. There can be good interpretations that contradict one another that, Absolutely. that we don't, that, that we don't know. We, we don't, because, because the writers, I, I, and I, and I say this very carefully to thinking about like LGBT issues. We don't, we don't know what those writers 
meant because their understanding of sexuality and of orientation of gender were completely different than ours and well, yeah. so yeah i mean and, and not even just like their understanding like like uh, it's all such a mess <laughs> in part it's like we're also like i, I love yeah. the fact that you point out the fact that this is an ancient text we're reading this in english yeah this is already an interpretation of something <laughs> yeah like and even like you know one of i think the most beautiful and useful things that someone's told me as it relates to like looking at scripture is that interpretation and translation are both political acts mm-hmm. and not even it's not always that it's like intentionally political but people walk in the room with their politics they walk right. in with their mm-hmm. perspectives and so like when you go to like do an interpretation of something right like and we know this as you know people who are ministers like who have to like engage in some interpretive work in order to do things like craft like sermons right mm-hmm. like there are things that are going to pop out to us because of our perspectives and our experiences which also inform the writers right. <laughs> like there's so much bias at work and yeah. i think it takes a certain amount of humility mm. in order to understand that there's bias that happen in the writing there's bias that happen in the compiling there's mm-hmm. bias that happens in the ways that we hold it and the way that others hold it but it's the lack of humility and like the like the full exercise of hubris to think that you are somehow without bias and mm-hmm. that brings us back to the place of like looking at these systems of supremacy Because, Mm -hmm. like, when you are in a place where your identity is centered, you can act like you are not even just can act like, but you are you are formed, you are nurtured, you are, you know, brought up in a way where, like, you don't have the ability to see what's around you because those things were intentionally obscured from you. Mm-hmm. And so like, as we bring it back to like what we're talking about, like, you know, with the movement for black lives and people contesting it, you know, part of the resistance is that, you know, these walls that have existed around them are being knocked down and like there's more light that's being let in that illuminates things and that is a painful process for people mm-hmm. like i don't know like you know for like our listeners like if y'all have been in that situation where like somebody like you're in a dark room and somebody raises the blinds like you cover your eyes like you go under the blankets like you do whatever it is to get away from this light that like that didn't exist a few moments before. And I think that like some of these, like, you know, not even verbally violent, we're looking at like also like real physical violence, right? Mm-hmm. Like people driving cars through protests, intentionally yeah. injuring people. That's what's happening because the light of the reality of other people is seeping in and they don't like it. They don't want it. They want to continue to be in that dark room where it was just them, where they were comfortable. They're not ready to get up. They don't desire to get up. They want things to maintain, you know, maintain, they want to maintain status quo. They want things to be the way that they've always been and understanding that they live in a world Mm -hmm. that doesn't, that where that's not possible right now. They are violently mm-hmm. reacting emotionally, spiritually, physically to it. And this is like the moment that we find ourselves in at present. This, yes. this is amazing. This is like, I could talk, I could listen to y'all talk and talk to y'all about this stuff for eight hours. <laughs> like It's just so rich, so good. I have so many, mm, like that, but you know, that deep, mm, you know what I'm saying? There's a, there's a mm that's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I hear you. But then there's that deep mm that's like, 
I'm about to process this for the next 20 minutes. Mm, that's I've had so many of those, so much stuff to process. I'm so grateful for both of your brilliance on on this and helping to bring some clarity uh, to all of us because these these issues are are so complex. And even even in the midst of going through like deconstruct a deconstruction process, you you notice all the ways that you have oversimplified things that are complex that you've created these mental binaries that like it has to be this or this. And what you guys have done for, for all of us today is help us to like break down those things and go, there's actually more to the story. There's, there are multiple ways of looking at this. And in the middle of that, what I'm hearing is that, that we, we are fighting for people's right to agency and autonomy over their own thoughts, their bodies, their, what they feel, what they think, who they love. And that's important. And that is that is rooted in, in tradition, going back as far as Jesus. That this is what this is what um, our our faith, especially those of us part of the Christian tradition, that our faith has always been about. So, anyway, thank you guys like so much for taking the time to educate us, to talk to us, to sit with us, y'all. Um, you can follow both Alicia and Ali uh, on their social media platforms and stay connected with the work that they're doing. I'll make sure that everything they're doing is in the show notes. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. The song that you're listening to, once again, is called Sorry by Comfort Fit. I'd like to thank them for that music. I'd like to thank all of you for supporting the Patreon and being part of the Patreon community. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this and for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time.